Mark 10, and we're going to be looking at the first 16 verses of this chapter. If you're using one of the Bibles provided underneath the seats, you can find the text on page 845, going on to 846. And if I'm not mistaken, when we began this sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, we started on page 836 of those Bibles, so we have made it 10 pages through Scripture. Lord willing, in nine more months, we'll be 10 pages further. Not that the speed or distance through Scripture matters so much when we study God's Word. His Spirit speaks through it nonetheless. To remind you about what's been going on uh, presently in the book, Jesus is making his way, journeying south with his disciples towards Jerusalem. It's a journey that's going to end at the cross. And along the journey, Jesus has been teaching more intentionally with his disciples. Uh, He's been revealing about himself and his purpose on earth. And so he confirmed Peter's confession that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And he predicted his death and resurrection twice now, plainly for them to hear. And after each time, the disciples reveal very quickly that their idea of the Messiah and Jesus' idea of the Messiah is totally different. And what Jesus' plans for them is most likely different as well. So he's been teaching them crucial things about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's completely flipped their worldview upside down multiple times by saying things like, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And he also said, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. Most recently, just at the end of chapter 9, he warned them of the dangers of sin, calling them to a radical life of holiness saying it's better to cut off your hand or pluck out your eye and to enter the kingdom of life with one eye or one hand than to enter hell with two hands or with two eyes. In our passage this morning, Jesus continues to teach in a way that demands a totally different way of living from the rest of the world. In our passage, Jesus corrects the thinking of both his enemies, the Pharisees, and the thinking of his friends, in the disciples. And there is much for us to glean from both. Let's read our text together now. Mark 10, 1 through 16. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about the matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. 
and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The main idea of this passage is that Christians should aspire to have childlike faith in the provisions of God, namely marriage and salvation. Christians should aspire to have childlike faith in the provisions of God, namely marriage and salvation. And I'm just going to have two points addressing each one of those things. In the first 12 verses, Jesus corrects the vision of marriage of the Pharisees and the disciples. And in verses 13 through 16, Jesus speaks about salvation and how children provide a picture for the way we are to come to Christ. My prayer is that whether you are here this morning as someone who is married, single, divorced, widowed, a parent, or a child, you would see that God is a relational being and that you would be reminded of his steadfast love and mercy toward us this morning. So first, marriage. This is the point of Jesus' teaching. And it's this, this particular set of verses is often cited and looked to when it comes to the topic of divorce. And I'm sure you can see why. But I think as, you, as we go through it, you'll see that Jesus is teaching more positively about marriage than he is negatively about divorce. Jesus and company have left Capernaum. Uh, I think from chapter 933 is the last time Mark gave us an indication of his whereabouts. And now they're traveling down to Judea and beyond the Jordan. And if you'll remember, uh, this is where John the Baptist's ministry was, where Jesus was baptized. So it's almost like Jesus and his journey in ministry has come full circle. He's gone through Jewish regions, he's gone up into Gentile regions, and now he's coming back down. And this journey from Capernaum was about 100 miles, so on foot it may have taken them a few weeks, depending on how quickly they went. Mark tells us that Jesus, along the way, continues to do what he does. He teaches. As they go from place to place, Jesus teaches the people. And that's a good reminder for us that God who made us is a teacher. Therefore, when we open God's word, we should approach it like students, ready to learn and ready to be challenged. He's also drawing crowds, plural, many people, just like we've seen in the past. Jesus has reached this kind of celebrity status, and he's teaching on religious matters about the kingdom of God. And so to no surprise, he's got others of the day as well who take issue with Jesus. And they make another appearance to ask him a question. Now, we don't really know. Mark doesn't give us a lot of context as to why they ask this question. But he does say that question with the intent of interaction. In the past, this is the more mild and uneventful as he has with them. Uh, as early as chapter 3 in Mark's Gospel, the Pharisees are seeking to destroy Jesus, plotting to kill him. So we can assume that their intentions are not positive. They're not curious about what he has to say. They ask specifically about 
an issue uh, that was probably controversial, and that's whether or not it is lawful to divorce. And I think that word lawful reveals a little bit of the nature of their question. Uh, the Pharisees, they've always been sticking. The Sabbath, if you'll remember, any additional that they even allowed someone from saving one from the Sabbath. They made observance more about their own status and superiority over others than they did about worship and obeying God. They missed the point of the law entirely. Well, in this passage, they're doing the same thing but with divorce. So they asked if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife, which uh, makes it just sound if divorce is okay, period. Um, but what you may not know is that it was actually assumed that there was at least some scenarios where divorce was legally recognized, uh, permitted in, case, in the case of adultery in Jewish tradition. Uh, so what the Pharisees are actually asking, and Matthew expands more in his account of this, is whether or not divorce is permissible for any reason. Basically, they want to know how they can get out of marriage without breaking the law, still be lawful, and get out of marriage. Uh, this would be like someone going to a bank and asking about taking out a loan, but while you're doing that, also asking about the details of bankruptcy and how you can get out of repaying loans that you take out. That's kind of like what they're doing here. Uh, then There were basically two streams of thought in Judaism. One thought that uh, divorce was only permissible in cases of adultery, and the other that had a much looser understanding and really saw that if there was any kind of... Uh, if a spouse was displeased with another spouse, then it was grounds for divorce. And in case you think that's overly simplistic, you can just look up uh, traditions recorded in the Mishnah. There are plenty that seem outrageous. One of them is... Literally, that a burnt meal is grounds for divorce. That would add a little bit of pressure to your marriage, wouldn't it? Preparing a meal. Don't burn it. Or I'm gone. Or you're gone. So it appears that if Jesus answers, either positively or negatively, he's going to upset some people. I think that's the main idea here. Uh, and it could also be that the Pharisees just knew that Jesus had an unpopular view of divorce. After all, John the Baptist spoke publicly against Herod Antipas, who took his brother, uh, Philip's wife, Herodias, for himself. John the Baptist spoke publicly against it, and it got him beheaded in prison. In any case, Jesus responds the way he often does. He gives them a question. He says, what did Moses command? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus says in verse 5 that Moses did that because of the hardness of their heart. What exactly did Jesus mean by that? This might feel technical, but most likely what they're referring to when they say Moses allowed a man to send his wife away with a certificate of divorce, the main place that people go to in the law is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. But if you read those verses, you'll find that divorce is assumed and regulated. 
but not necessarily approved. Meaning, he provides instruction for the women being divorced in order to prevent a situation in which she is taken advantage of. Uh, So this law that Moses sets forth actually gives her rights and protection. And Jesus says it's because of their hard hearts, because of unbelief. It's the same unbelief and hard-heartedness in all of us that leads us to sin, that brings out desires that cause broken relationships, and in some cases, the result is divorce. And so Moses provided guidelines in how to handle the situations that their sin placed them in. For example, if you read it, you'll see that a woman was not to leave one man for another, and then, and then if the second husband was killed, she could not return to the first husband. And I think the purpose of that was to prevent people from taking either entrance into marriage or exiting marriage lightly. They were never to enter into divorce or marriage lightly, but it was to be taken seriously. But Jesus doesn't even stop at Moses. He could have just explained to them what the purpose of that law was, but instead he goes above Moses' head. In verses 6 through 9, he says, I know Moses said this to you, but what was God's will before Moses gave you the law? And he quotes directly from Genesis 1.27 and 2.24, which famously tells the story of creation and the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And this first marriage is meant to be a paradigm of God's design and purpose for marriage. So when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about divorce, he goes back to what marriage was supposed to be and says that it is a relationship between a male and a female. What do we learn from Jesus bringing up the creation account? Three things, I think, three really important things. First, marriage is designed by God. It's not designed by man. Why do I say that? Because clearly our culture wants to make marriage whatever they want it to be. And legally, we can't say they don't really have a reason not to. But as Christians, we know that marriage is unique and a specific covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Whether or not Webster's comes up with a new definition for it does not change that fact. He says that from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And while we're thinking about creation, before sin entered the world, I think it's just important to note That when God said it was not good for man to be alone, he didn't make for him another man. He did not make for him multiple wives. He made Eve, one wife. And I'm aware that there are examples of polygamy in the Bible, uh, but those relationships are never commended. In fact, they're almost always painted in a negative light, and they almost always end badly. But marriage as God created it before the fall was between one man and one woman. And the reason that is so important for us is because if God created the institution of marriage, then he is the authority of it. Therefore, the only way for us to understand the beauty of marriage rightly is to understand God's design. So do you see God as an authority in your own marriage if you're married? Second thing we learn from Jesus, we learn that marriage or the joining together of one man and one woman is an act of God. Look how clear that is in verse 9 where Jesus says, What therefore God 
has joined together. Let not man separate. So the joining is done by God and the separating is done by man. So marriage is not only designed or created by God for a specific purpose, but even within each specific marriage, Christian or not, it is an act of God. The coming together of a man and a woman is God's doing, and therefore to divorce is to undo the very work of God. Jesus is saying divorce is man's doing, that it is not God's intent or design or plan. Third thing we learn. We see that when two people are married, they become one. They go from two individuals to one flesh. They are united. They are a new creation. And this image of being one flesh, I think, helpfully gives us a picture of when a marriage ends in divorce, the pain that it causes and brings. It is like tearing apart one's own flesh. It's like removing a part of yourself. So what is Jesus doing by mentioning these things? Well, in referring to these verses, Jesus turns their thinking completely on its head. The Pharisees are looking for ways to justify divorce, and Jesus is saying that marriage, by its very definition, is meant to last. Marriage is not defined by what breaks it apart, but by the power that keeps it together. There was really only one reason in Jesus' time that someone would get divorced, and that reason was likely to be with another person. Uh, today we make uh, marriage, or our culture I should say, makes marriage about being happy and being fulfilled, and so there are sometimes even advocates who, uh, who encourage divorce and living you know, free to yourself. But in Jesus' day it was about bearing children and acquiring wealth, uh, and uniting families. So to understand when the Pharisees ask if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife, they're, they're likely looking for a get-out-of-jail-free card for their marriage. And that's why Jesus equates divorce with adultery in verses 10 through 12. And that's consistent with Jesus' teachings. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, he says that if any man looks at a woman with lustful intent, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. And so here I think it's clear that if someone is divorcing someone to be with someone else, then you've already looked with lustful intent towards someone else, coveted what's not yours, and sinned in that way to lead you to that point. So you may be wondering at this point, uh, if Jesus does allow divorce at all, if there's ever a situation in which it is permissible, uh, well, generally uh, Christians have held one of three different views on this. So some say, there are some Christians who just say, never divorce. Uh, and, and of course, they mourn and grieve bad situations. Uh, but people like John Piper, I, I believe, holds this view. Uh, that's one view. The other view is that divorce is permissible under uh, instances of sexual immorality, but not remarriage. Uh, the elders of this church believe that divorce is sometimes permissible under circumstances of uh, sexual immorality or abandonment. And the reason for that is because Jesus states that divorce is allowable on the grounds of sexual immorality in Matthew 5 and 19. And Paul agrees and includes uh, the abandonment of a non-believer in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, and we may understand things like physical abuse as a form of abandonment since that is often a functional result. 
But I think the reason Mark doesn't include Jesus' exception clause, meaning uh, if anyone commits divorce, except for in cases of sexual immorality, then for him it is adultery. The reason Mark doesn't include that is because Jesus is teaching that marriage for the Christian is a matter of discipleship. It's part of dying to self. Instead of looking for ways to lawfully get out of marriage, we as Christians should see marriage as an institution of God that is meant to be for life. Jesus is reminding them that God's intention for marriage is bigger than our own desires or bigger than our own dreams. It's rather to point to a greater reality of his love for his people. To divorce should not be thought of as something that Christians do. Uh, it breaks my heart to see when you look up divorce statistics how high they are. Uh, and it's not surprising, but what is surprising to me is that it seems like when you look at those statistics in Christian circles, they're pretty much identical. For some reason, among Christians, divorce statistics are just as high as they are among non-Christians. Now, I think every survey numbers are only so accurate, so I take them with a grain of salt. But I think that's not how things should be. People will try to tell you that their divorces were good things, Uh, I've met people like this, uh, that you're better off. Uh, But you know what's worse than the divorce statistics for first marriages, which they say is roughly around 50%. What's worse than those percentages are the statistics for second and third marriages, which most people don't talk about. Those statistics then jump to 60 or 73%. So there's no reason to think you'd be better off if you were to start over. In fact, the data points to the opposite. But divorce, wherever it occurs, and however it occurs, should be lamented. Now, perhaps uh, you are here and you have been divorced, or perhaps you've divorced someone else. Uh, While it's a serious offense to God first and the other person, it leaves waves of damage in life, it is not the unforgivable sin. Not at all. In fact, if you read through the Bible, you'll know that we are all spiritual adulterers at heart. That's how the Bible describes our passions for sinful things as idols in our lives. We have been unfaithful to God already. We have forgotten our first love. But that's what makes the gospel so sweet. That's what makes God's love so precious. God instructed his prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute to teach the Israelites about the ways that God is a faithful husband to them, despite their faithlessness. As we read earlier, Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. He's the husband who sanctifies his bride, the church. He lived a sinless life and died on the cross so that we could be washed clean and clothed with his righteousness. Whether you have a broken spirit or a broken flesh, Christ has come to mend our wounds. Jesus is our Redeemer. And Paul calls that a a great mystery. That marriage is a picture of Christ's love and the church. And that's why divorce should not be considered for the Christian. It's, It's the primary relationship meant to give us an idea of of Jesus and the church. To abandon a marriage is to distort the image 
of commitment and love and sacrifice that is all bound up in the marriage relationship. If you're considering marriage here in this room, uh, I want you to think carefully about Jesus' words in this passage and recognize that according to Jesus, marriage should not be walked into quickly or lightly or unadvisedly, but should be walked into carefully, soberly, with an understanding that marriage is not meant to end in divorce, but meant to be for life or until death. Be sure that you don't mistake lust for love. Don't mistake marriage for fulfillment of your dreams or your identity. It's partnership with another Christ follower. It's union with another sinner. But if your attitude is, I, have a, I need to have a better backup plan in case things don't work out, well, then you probably shouldn't be considering marriage at this time. Uh, perhaps you're here this morning and you're uh, married, but you're not so happy about your marriage. In fact, if you're honest, you want out of it. Dear friend, if that's you, uh, please don't act hastily. Talk with your pastors. Uh, ask yourself if you sincerely want to live out God's will for your life or if you want to live out your own. Back to the disciples. They do the wise thing, uh, not like they normally do, but here they do the wise thing and they wait until Jesus is at the house to ask follow-up questions. They're no longer in a, in a public place. And you can tell that they're having a hard time understanding Jesus as well. So they ask for more explanation, and Jesus tells them uh, that if a man divorces for another woman or the other way around, it's adultery to the first spouse. And this is really interesting because in the day, divorce was not primarily seen as a sin against the wife, but against her family, against the father. Uh, and in Jewish circles, most, most of the time, divorce wasn't initiated by the woman. And that may be an indication of Mark's Gentile audience. But here, it is first a sin against God, then a sin against the individual directly. And notice that Jesus assumes equality of the two individuals, holding each initiator responsible for their sins. Like Moses, he gives woman, women a status of equality as with the men. I think when it comes to divorce, we need to hear Jesus' instructions with as much force as he gave them. Our culture has watered down this picture of marriage so much uh, by changing definitions, by prioritizing compatibility and happiness and fulfillment. Uh, they've completely robbed it of its beauty and what it's meant to reflect. Sacrificial commitment towards one another. The most God-glorifying and healthy marriages that I know, speaking personally, are the most selfless marriages that are marked by the same kind of self-sacrifice or servant-heartedness that Christ instructs. I think that's the way to achieve God's design for representing the Christ's love for the church within your marriage. But there will be difficulties in any marriage. Uh, after all, it's the joining of two sinners. Sinners sin, that's what they do. So if you're married or going to be married someday, uh, remember this. Your spouse is not Jesus. They'll fall short. 
be ready to forgive. We all fall short of the glory of God. But to think that your life would be better if you swapped out one sinner for another, I think would just be to be fooled by the world's way of thinking. So, brothers and sisters, I plead with you to listen to Jesus. Think about whether or not your idea of marriage, your hopes, expectations, and goals, whether those things are based on God's design and purpose for it, or whether or not your idea of marriage is influenced or taken by the values of the world. Following Jesus in the context of marriage means not separating what God has joined together. Point two, more briefly, salvation. Uh, Verses 13 through 16, uh, this is where the image of childlike faith comes from because of the way that Jesus uses children as an example. Children are being brought to Jesus, likely by their parents, so that he can touch them, which just means bless them or pray for them. Uh, It was common in the day to do that as a way of blessing or healing those. What was not common was for a uh, powerful or popular person to do this with people on the lower end of society. And that's what children were, uh, sadly. It's not until children are able to work and contribute to society that they're seen as useful or valuable. So the disciples don't know any different but to assume that Jesus just doesn't have time for them. Jesus is too important. Haven't you seen all these crowds coming to Jesus? He's the Messiah. Don't you think he has bigger and better things to do than to spend time with children? And the text says that the disciples were rebuking them. And that's uh, what people do uh, with demons in the Bible. Be gone. Leave. Get out of here. That's what the disciples are doing to these children and families. Verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He was angry. And this is one of the few times that we actually read of Jesus' anger, and it's directed to his own disciples. Why was that? Didn't Jesus at least recognize their good intentions and freeing him up, uh, perhaps so he could uh, teach a higher level of education, of theology? No. They didn't have compassion on the lowest and the least of society. Remember at the end of chapter 9, verse 42, Jesus said, While holding a child, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. See how passionate Jesus is about those who follow him. And these little ones may be future followers of Jesus. And the disciples are acting like a barrier, repelling them from him. And so Jesus is indignant. And look what he says. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus says of children, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So kids in the room, I want you to know, Brooklyn, that Jesus is for you. He's not just for your parents, right? Uh, He came to die for you. Uh, At some point, you're going to need to decide who you live for in this life. And Jesus promises he will never leave you or forsake you. This is why we as Christians, uh, especially the parents in the room, have a special obligation to teach our children about Jesus. Because Jesus says the kingdom of God is for them. Now Jesus is not saying by this that children are saved apart from uh, professing faith in him. 
but he's speaking in a way that was not understood in the day. Uh, just like he said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Well, the children in that society were last. And that's why in our church covenant, one of the lines is our promise to raise those who are placed under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to the best of our ability. You could say that one of God's primary modes of evangelism for Christian families is to have children and to teach them about Jesus. And I don't think it's an accident, by the way, that this teaching about children comes right after this teaching about marriage one of the primary functions of which is to bear children. If we want Christianity to grow, and even this church to be preaching the gospel for many years, even beyond the time that we are here, we need to direct our attention to those younger than us. Parents, just as it's the church's job to make disciples, it's your job to evangelize and to disciple your kids. And if that's intimidating... Uh, Let me just encourage you, you don't have to know everything about the Bible. Uh, You don't have to be a master theologian or even a good teacher to do that. Uh, I think one of the best things that you can do in your household is to make conversations about Jesus and the church uh, and God just common and casual parts of everyday life. Uh, Make it so that those topics are not loaded with baggage as they get older. Be honest with them about the normal difficulties in your own life. And take seriously the things that are on their hearts. Uh, I I know a family back on the East Coast uh, that taught me a really valuable lesson one year. They have four daughters, but the two younger ones, ages six and ages eight. And uh, the two of them got in a fight over a a toy. Something very trivial. Something that I would have easily rolled my eyes uh, over. And the six-year-old... As frustrated as she was, came to her mother, uh, wanting justice. And uh, I was so encouraged by the mother's response to take very seriously the things that were on the six-year-old's heart and to even lead her in prayer for those feelings and for her eight-year-old sister. Real anger and real heartache. The same emotions that we have when bigger things happen to us. But for them... Uh, that's what's important. And what, a, what, a, what an encouraging and godly example in the way to instruct your kids and taking your concerns to God. What a good example of caring for children, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus uses the presence of children among them to teach his disciples another lesson, that if we are to enter the kingdom of God, we must receive it like a child would. As we said, children uh, didn't really have anything to offer society in that day. Uh, They didn't really have anything to offer Jesus. They came to Jesus only to receive. And that's what Jesus is teaching us about receiving him, that we bring nothing to the table. We don't have anything to offer him. And if we assume we do, we actually deceive ourselves. Uh, We're in danger of trusting in ourselves rather than trusting in the finished work of Christ. Jesus is teaching his disciples that eternal life comes only as a gift, as grace, not not as a result of any kind of merit. So if you feel like you don't have anything to offer Jesus, that's actually better because it's true. 
one of the reasons it's so important for Christians to watch over children and to care for them spiritually and physically is because they are dependent. Uh, Because, frankly, sometimes they are naive and gullible, to put it negatively. But children are, are also naturally trusting of adults, oftentimes because they don't know what kind of dangers or threats are out there in the world. So they live trusting others and living in dependence. God's design in human relationships is not random, and that goes for children under the authority of their parents. Children don't have much to offer when they're young. That's still true today. They eat a lot. They make a lot of noise, especially between years two and three. Happens to be right where my son is right now. And they break things. They break things all over the place. We love our children dearly, don't get me wrong. But they can be a lot, and they are helpless without us. Elias constantly wants to just skateboard into the street, no matter how many barriers I make for him. And it makes me wonder what he would do if I was not around to stop him. They're helpless. And Jesus says that if we are to receive the kingdom of God like children, then we too are helpless and need to come to him like we're helpless, in need of direction and protection, trusting in God to meet all our needs. When we come to Jesus, it's not because we have anything to offer. It is only to receive. We come to him unworthy, not as assets for the kingdom of God, but as needy beggars. And the metaphor here goes both ways. If people are to come into the kingdom by expressing childlike faith, then just look at the compassion that meets all who come to Jesus. If we cry out in faith to God, he meets us like a loving father. He provides for and protects without any restraint. I can tell you that when it comes to my own children, I will not only partly provide or partly protect, my relationship to them is unquestioning. And so it is for God to us as well. For all who come to him like children and believe in him, Jesus promises forgiveness and entrance into the kingdom of God. If you haven't come to Jesus like a child like this, uh, I would urge you to do so today. Consider giving your life over to him and living not for your own desires, but for the will of God. These passages, just like the last few sections of the gospel, redefine discipleship for us. We are not to live the way the world lives. The world says to live your best life now, to prioritize your own well-being, to not let others stop you from living the way that you want to live. But Jesus says that for those who believe in him, they are to be salt of the earth. They are to live with a different set of priorities. Our aim in life is to please God and not ourselves. And when that's our aim, When we are faithful to him, his commands and his design will cause you to flourish in a way that cannot happen apart from his grace in your life. These last few sections have been all about discipleship, but Jesus continues to express his divine identity here as well. Did you notice, for example, the way Jesus associates the kingdom of God with his very person as the children come to him? As the children are brought to him to receive a blessing, he says that this is the way that we are to receive the kingdom of God. 
which is seen in the authority and the sacrifice of Jesus himself who brought the kingdom of God to us. So how will you live? Will you follow the shape-shifting values of the world? Or will you live like children? What authority will you listen to in life? Jesus, who reveals the very heart of God, or the world? Brothers and sisters, aspire for childlike faith in your life, especially in the areas of marriage and salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you made us, but we have sinned against you. Would you teach us to depend on you wholly? Would you help us to be completely dependent on you and not trust ourselves? Protect us from believing the lies of the world, that your design is anything but good. We thank you that you are a faithful husband to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.